This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. This morning is week two of our summer message series, Colossians, the Supremacy of Christ. And when we use that term, uh, the supremacy of Christ, what we're talking about is how Jesus is over all things. He's above all things. He's in all things. Uh, Colossians 1.17, which we'll get to next week, puts it very well. It says that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And so kind of the, the whole goal of this summer is to allow Paul's letter to the Colossians to help us to look up and to see Jesus for who he is, to see him just in, his, in the fullness of kind of his majesty and his glory and his power, and not only to look up, but then also to look around and see how he's not only supreme up there, but he is supreme down here as well, and that changes everything about our lives. And so we're doing a few different things um, to try to remind ourselves of that and pay attention to that. We've changed our, our service order a little bit for the summer to try to allow some time at the end of each service for uh, us just to have these truths driven home through the songs that we sing, through some uh, times of prayer together. And so that's, that's why if you were gone last week and wondering why, why was that music so short at the beginning, that's why. Uh, so if you're super type A, you can relax a little bit and just know that was on purpose and there was a plan behind it. The second thing you can do is uh, you can text the words Christian Chapel to 31996. You can do that right now. And then throughout the summer, you'll get just one or two uh, text messages a week. It'll just be a, a short scripture from Colossians or some other encouragement from something we've talked about to just kind of remind you in the middle of your week that Christ is supreme, that he's overall above all and in all things. So you can do that and get those kind of throughout the summer with us as well. This morning, we're going to talk about how Jesus is uh, the supremacy of Christ affects our sin. And we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. And we'll get to it in just a moment. When you talk about um, Jesus, everyone knows him, right? I mean, you can talk in almost any culture in the world. And even if they, uh, you know, if it's a place where the gospel has not been established, generally there is still some recognition of the name Jesus. And especially in more Western cultures like ours, basically everyone knows something about Jesus. He's the most well-known person in the history of the world. He's a pervasive influence in every culture uh, from his day to ours. And today, if you were to go around our nation or around much of the world, uh, everyone would generally have something positive to say about him, whether they are Muslim or a capitalist, a Democrat, a Republican, a communist, whatever they are. If they're in our country, you see it in all of our, our more well-known celebrities, our rappers, our musicians, our movie stars, our athletes. Uh, you see it in business world. Generally, everybody has something good to say about Jesus. And generally, at least in America, everybody is pretty good at co-opting part of what Jesus said to kind of further their own message or their own methods for doing certain things. So when we start to talk about the supremacy of Christ, what is important for us to understand is that the supremacy of Christ is not just about people knowing the name of Jesus, but it's about people knowing Jesus, knowing who he is and why he came and what difference that makes in their life and in our world. And that's what we're exploring this summer as we work through Paul's letter to the Colossians together. Colossians teaches us that Jesus is above all things and in him all things hold together. This means we can never reduce him then to someone who's just kind of another historical figure or an inspirational teacher 
or someone that we use to further our own interest or our own kingdom in the world. Jesus is completely unique. This is what the supremacy of Christ means. There is no one like him in his power, in his wisdom, in his strength. This morning, we're going to see how that reality affects the way we confront the sin that is in our lives. So we're going to start in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. If not, it'll be here on the screens for you. Paul writes in verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father." who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now again, just a a little context for what we're reading here. The, The church in Colossae is who Paul is writing to. Paul had not planted this church, but it was, it was planted by uh, someone he knew named Epaphras. Epaphras had most likely become a Christian in Ephesus, uh, where Paul had established a church on one of his missionary journeys. And so the report of the church in Colossae has got back to Paul, and this letter is his response to the report he's received. And so he's heard of their faith, he's heard of how the gospel is taking root and is flourishing there in their city, and he's also heard, as we'll see in the coming weeks, that they're facing some opposition. There are people who are coming to them and telling them, uh, the Jesus thing is good, but if you'll add this extra little element of Greek philosophy, or if you'll add these extra elements of Jewish religion, then you will have a full spiritual life. And so Paul writes to the Colossians to kind of declare to them, Jesus is enough. You don't need anything else. You don't need anyone else. What he's done is sufficient. It's all you need. He is the perfection of God's will in our world, and that's the end of it. But here in what we're reading this morning is actually Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae. He tells him, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. And then he kind of gets into this is, these are the things that we have been praying and that we are continuing to pray for you. Now, when it comes to prayer, uh, Christians have all different kinds of feelings on that. You know, I know some of you here this morning, you are, you are nailing the prayer thing, right? You're just, you're the, if, if somebody has a need, you're the person they call to pray for them. Prayer comes easily to you. For, for others of us, prayer can be a little more difficult. You know, you can do your best. You can be diligent. You can set aside the time during the day. Maybe you've even kind of carved out a space in your home, and you're like, okay, this is where I'm going to pray. This is going to be kind of the, the holy place that I set aside. I get away from everything. And maybe you sit down there, and you start to pray, and within about two or three minutes, you're trying to remember the name of that kid who lived down the street from you when you were little, right? I mean, I'm sure none of you have ever had that because you're all super holy. But for some people out there somewhere, prayer sometimes can be a difficult thing because your mind just tends to wonder. And the the beautiful thing is if you have a mind like that, you know, if you have that kind of, hey, look, a squirrel uh, kind of just approach to life generally, if you're locked in for about 10 seconds at a time until something gets your attention over here. One of the beautiful things of Scripture, and especially when it comes to prayer, is that the Scripture gives us so many models for prayer. 
You know, this is one of the reasons we pray the Lord's Prayer together each week. It's a reminder to us. Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. And he kind of puts these, these pillars of prayer in our lives. Pray for God's kingdom to come, his will to be done. Pray that you will forgive as you've been forgiven. Pray that God will provide, that he'll deliver you from temptation. All of these sorts of things, they're, they're wonderful things for us. And Paul does the same thing for us here in Colossians 1. So if you struggle to pray, if you have that kind of distracted mind, or even if you're really good at it, I want you to, to hear this this morning, not only as this ancient prayer Paul prayed a long time ago for people who they're all dead and gone now and their city's destroyed and everything else, but I want you to hear it as a model for prayer for your life. These are the things you should pray for yourself. They're the things you should pray for your friends and your family. They're the things you should be praying for Christian chapel. They're the things that you should be praying for everyone, everywhere. And Paul kind of lays this out for us, and, and it becomes really beautiful. So let's look at the things he prays for. In verse 9, he starts by saying, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and the understanding that the Spirit gives. I mean, that's such a, an easy thing, such a natural thing. When you don't know what to pray, pray for the knowledge of God's will, right? In many ways, what Paul is going to pray for the Colossians is an exposition of the Lord's Prayer. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're saying, your kingdom come, your will be done. And Paul says, what I want for you is to have knowledge of the Lord's will. And just think of, of praying this prayer for yourself. How much easier would your life be if in every decision in every moment you had the confidence to know I am moving in God's will in this season right or think of this as a parent of all the worries you have for your children like I my kids are, are 11 8 and 7 and so we've got certain worries right now we've got one that's about to start middle school so I've got this whole extra set of worries right now I've got a little girl that one day is not going to be a little girl anymore, and that creates all other kinds of worries for me. But when I pray this prayer for them, it should bring peace to my heart. Because if I believe that God wants to fill them with the knowledge of his will, that's going to eliminate about 99.9% .9 of the things I worry about. Because I'm worried about, well, what if they do this? And what if they do that? And what if they give into this influence? Or what if they get into that relationship? Or what if they struggle with this or struggle with that? But really, instead of going out into all of these what ifs, it's much better for me to center my soul and to center my prayers and, Lord, fill them with the knowledge of your will. And this is what Paul prays. And the knowledge of God's will is not some kind of mystical, super spiritual, secret knowledge that's hard to discern and difficult to grasp. But throughout Paul's letters, what he makes very clear to us is that the knowledge of God's will is a knowledge of the gospel. And so when he prays for the Colossians, I pray that God will fill you with the knowledge of his will, that he will do that by the wisdom and the understanding of the spirit. What he's saying is, I'm praying that God will help make it very, God will make it incredibly clear to your heart that his will is that Jesus Christ came to die for you, to restore a relationship between you and God, and to move you into his kingdom. 
And then that becomes kind of the filter through which you make every decision. So when I'm praying for my kids, God, fill them with the knowledge of your will. I'm not necessarily praying, help them to know if they should go to this college or to that college. Help them to know if they should buy this house or that house, pursue this career or that career, that relationship or this relationship. But what I'm praying is, God, let your gospel be so transformative in their life that it becomes the filter through which they make every single decision in life. And when we have that kind of knowledge of God's will, it leads to a sense of peace and rest for us. Paul goes on to pray, you know, he, he wants them to have knowledge of God's will, not just so that they kind of do good on tests about their faith, but he wants them to have knowledge of God's will so that it will penetrate in to the deepest parts of their souls and it will overflow in the way they live. In verse 10, he prays, they, he wants them to have this knowledge so that they may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of the Lord. Paul puts these two things together, the idea of bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of the Lord. Again, he's not looking for them to know more theological facts about God. But he's asking God to come and fill them with the knowledge of the gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done so that it will transform their hearts and then flow out into the world around them. And this, this connection between what we believe about God and how we live in the world has been essential to Christian faith from the beginning and continues to be essential for us today. It's especially important in a world that has less and less affinity for absolute truth. You know, when we, the world we live in is one where it is increasingly difficult for people to agree to the idea that there is a truth that exists outside of me, right? The, the common theme in our culture is if it's true for you, good for you. And if it's true for me, good for me. But don't push yours on me and I won't push mine on you. And so it's, it's incredibly challenging then for a follower of Christ who believes in the supremacy of Christ, that he's overall and above all things, to be able to communicate this idea with the world. And so when Paul prays it will be filled with the knowledge of, the work of God's will, again, it's not necessarily I'm praying that God will make you so smart you'll win every argument. But it's I'm praying you'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will and that that will lead to you bearing fruit through good works in the world around you. Tim Keller is a, a pastor and an author in New York City, and uh, he contributed to a book called The Supremacy of Christ in a Postmodern World. And in that, he addressed this idea. He said, people today are incredibly sensitive to inconsistency and phoniness. They hear what the gospel teaches and then look at our lives and see the gap. Why should they believe? We have to recognize that the gospel is a transforming thing, and we simply are not very transformed by it. It's not enough to say to postmodern people, you don't like absolute truth? Well then, we're going to give you even more of it. People who balk at so much absolute truth will need to see greater holiness of life, practical grace, gospel character, and virtue if they are going to believe. Tim Keller is an incredibly, if you've never read any of his books, he is an incredibly brilliant person. And that's why uh, instead of me trying to say that, I just read that and put that up there for us, right? So uh, if you get nothing else out of today, like take a picture and you'll leave a smarter person. Um, because he puts it so beautifully. You can't, in our culture, you can't just go out and continue to say, the Bible says so. 
We believe the Bible says so. But that knowledge of God must be paired with good works if we hope to have a hearing in our culture. Right? I, I, again, I shared this with you because the, the way I would say it is knowing God's will leads to doing God's will. Right? What you know about him should change the way you live for him. Or to put it another way, the, the way the gospel works in us is it has to move from our head, from knowing about God, to our heart, to realizing this is what God did for me. And then from there, it must flow out to our hands, to this is how I now live in the world around me. The gospel, the knowledge of God, always has practical outworkings in the world around us. Paul is praying for the Colossian church that their understanding of the supremacy of Christ will lead them to a life that bears fruit in their homes, in their communities, in their jobs, in their church, in everywhere that they go, in every place their voice is heard, in every place they put their hands to work, that they will bear fruit by the power of God in them. Paul goes on to teach us that this fruit is most visible in us in difficult seasons. He continues to pray in verse 11 that they will be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. Now again, Paul is reminding us, your ability to bear fruit in good works, your ability to have the knowledge of God is rooted in God's glorious might. That's what strengthens you. That is what your source of power is. This is the same point Paul makes in Romans 8 when he tells us the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in you. He's repeatedly teaching us and he's praying for us that we will come to this deep-seated understanding that my hope in life is the glorious might of Christ. It's not my own strength. It's not my own ability. And when we begin to understand that, again, it leads to this deep-rooted peace where we know no matter what I face in life, I don't have to be afraid. I don't fear anything. I don't fear anyone because Jesus is always stronger and he has made his strength available to me. This means, though, that we have to adjust our prayers because it means uh, it's not necessarily true that Jesus, when we accept him and when we operate in his glorious strength, that we're always going to come out on top. Right? The promise of the gospel is not, hey, come follow me and everything will be perfect. The promise of the gospel is, I have overcome your sin, I am overcoming the world, and so my strength is enough for you no matter what you face. There was a, a, a philosopher in England in a, the, the 1950s, his name was John McMurray, and he gave a, a series of lectures, and, and part of it was on the, the role of faith and kind of the, the misunderstanding that many of us have of religion. And he, um, he said this, he said, the maxim of illusory religion runs, fear not, trust in God, and he will see that none of these things you fear will happen to you. That of real religion, on the contrary, is fear not, the things that you are afraid of are quite likely to happen to you, but they are nothing to be afraid of. I mean, again, now that, that's one that you should take a picture of and come back to it later this week. That guy's smarter than me, and that's, that's worth your 
ticket you paid to get in this morning. But that, I mean, just that last line right there. Now, again, this is in the, the early to mid-1950s that he's giving this series of lectures. So it's, it's kind of right on the, the beginning edge of what we would know in America as the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, this idea that Jesus died to make you bigger, faster, stronger, healthier, wealthier, better than your neighbors. Your kids' teams always win. They'll always get good grades. You'll never die. You'll live forever. You'll be, you know, it's just like this, this kind of Jesus came to just kind of make your life incredible. And in that kind of approach to the gospel, the way that people are attracted to Jesus is by how great my life looks. So that approach to the gospel says, you need a bigger house because that testifies to the world around you that Jesus takes care of his people. You need a faster car because it shows that God gives you the desires of your heart. You know, but, but again, it's so far gone. And, and that, that whole approach to the gospel twists this idea of God's strength. And it says that God's strength basically comes to you like a little add-on booster that maximizes your strengths and minimizes your weaknesses and helps you to achieve the best life you could ever imagine. But when Paul prays for the church to be strengthened by the glorious might of Christ, his prayer is not that. It's not that we will be bigger and better and, and more wonderful than all those around us. His prayer is rooted in the reality that, hey, yes, God does save you. He sets you apart in this new way of life. He promises to strengthen you by the power of his spirit. But Paul says the natural outworking of the glorious might of Christ will be endurance, patience, and giving joyful things. And when life just moves from success to success, there's not a whole lot of need for endurance or patience. So even in his prayer, Paul is laying the groundwork for the Colossian church of Jesus is bigger, Jesus is stronger, you're still going to experience some rough moments in life. You're still going to have to endure. You're still going to have to persevere. You're still going to have to push through. Right? And, and this is where like, it, it's, it's just, it, it comes down to your approach to the gospel. When we gather together on a Sunday, do we come in looking for just a, a little bit of a boost, a little bit of an encouragement, a little bit of a attaboy, go get them, you can do it, keep plugging away? Or do we come in ready to say, I am hopeless and helpless without Jesus? Do we come in, as, as so many people have described us throughout history, as just as beggars with nothing to our name, ready to receive whatever God offers to us? Because this is what Paul prays for us. Because I pray that you will be strengthened by his glorious might, and it will lead to endurance, patience, and the ability to give joyful thanks and it's in every season of life. See, if you spend your whole life just waiting for Jesus to make you a slightly better version of yourself, you're going to come to the end of life and you're going to be discouraged and you're going to be worn out. Because your whole life, it hasn't actually been about Jesus. It's been about you. It's been about him trying to, you trying to use him to build your kingdom, to establish your name instead of you surrendering to him and to his power and to his might. And that's where the, the beauty of that thought from John McMurray comes from is that, hey, look, the, the, the truth of the gospel is not Jesus save me from all of this. The truth of the gospel is all that stuff's going to happen to you. And it's nothing to be afraid of. You're going to experience difficulty. You're going to experience sickness. You're going to experience death. 
You're going to have seasons of plenty and seasons of want, seasons of faith and seasons of doubt. And there's nothing to be afraid of. And that's what Paul's praying for the Colossian church. Keep on going. Don't be afraid of being pushed beyond your strength because it's only in your weakness that you truly know the strength and the power of God. And this is a, a, a terrifyingly wonderful prayer for us to pray for ourselves and for us to pray for those we care about. It's terrifying because it means if, if we're praying that God's strength will show itself in endurance and patience and we're opening up our minds to the idea that life could be tough, it won't always be perfect, but it's wonderful because it means when we hit that point, and whether you pray this prayer or not, you're going to hit that point. But when you hit it, you'll find that Jesus is enough. And this would be a wonderful spot for us to just stop and to, to sing some songs and to, to go out this morning. And, and we'd go out kind of with this idea of like, hey, uh, you know, grow in your knowledge. So here's a Bible reading plan for you. Uh, grow in your wisdom and understanding of the Spirit. So here are 10 steps to living wisely. Bear fruit in every good work. Here are three things Christians do, and we've set up a couple opportunities for you this week, so go sign up and we'll do those things. Have endurance, be patient, give joyful thanks, and here's some ways you can do that as well. But again, the problem with that is it makes the gospel all about you. It makes it all about you and your action and what you do. And we have to learn and we have to embrace the reality that we cannot live for Christ on our own. Paul's prayer is not that the Colossians will be stronger, smarter people who follow Jesus through the strength of their own will and self-discipline. You see, if, as long as we try to live in this kind of self-made religion where Jesus is nothing more than an example to follow, we will continue to exhaust ourselves in the pursuit of religious perfection. And you're not going to fake it until you make it. You're going to fake it until you die. And you're going to die a miserable, discouraged, angry person. Right? Like, isn't that good news? Aren't you glad? You are so glad. I mean, I, like, I'm a little depressed up here even. That's just, I want to be the good news preacher, but it's just, this is what the scripture teaches us. It's not about, hey, yeah, you're awesome. Go win. Go do what you can in life. Go be the best version of yourself. It's about, man, I am hopeless and helpless, and I need Jesus Christ to come. We do not have the capacity in ourselves to realize what Paul prays for us in Colossians 1. On my own, I cannot grow in the knowledge of God. I can read a whole lot of books about God. I can listen to a whole lot of sermons where they are trying to explain to me who God is. But on my own, I cannot grow in the knowledge of him in a way that leads to good works, that produces his glorious might in me through my own strength because my sin prevents it. But again, this is where we thank God that Jesus is before all things. And that includes our sin. And this is how Paul concludes his prayer to the Colossians. He says, look, this is what I want you to have. I want you to have the knowledge of God. I want you to bear fruit in every good work. I want you to have endurance and patience and joy. And here's how that happens. In verse 13, he says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
See, the supremacy of Christ means that he is supreme over your sin. The, the picture that the, the gospel, the, the, New, the New Testament especially, paints for us is that in each of our lives, something is going to reign supreme. And that something is Jesus Christ or it's sin. And this sin can take on a lot of different names and it can look a lot of different ways. And throughout the history of the church and even this morning in this room, if we had time to say, okay, you either worship Jesus or you worship, and we could fill in the blank over here with dozens of different things, but at their core, they're all sin. And so what the scripture teaches us is you are going to be ruled by something, by Christ or by sin. And to choose to rule your own life is, in essence, to choose to be ruled by sin because the unique thing of the supremacy of sin is that you are captivated by your captor. You are convinced that the chains that are choking you are symbols of your freedom. You're convinced that in the blindness of sin, you see clearly and you know what's really going on. You're convinced that the thing that is killing you is your source of life. And it's such a dark place to be. You cannot get out on your own. We're powerless. We need help. And, and the language Paul uses here, this idea of the dominion of darkness, is meant to point our hearts towards the idea that you will never receive freedom unless a liberator comes from the outside. Paul's language that you have received redemption, the forgiveness of sins, that God has rescued you from the dominion of darkness, that he has brought us in to the kingdom of the son he loves. It, those, those phrases would have triggered something in the minds of the, the Jewish believers in Colossae. And especially when they heard that terminology of God's rescue and God's bringing them out into the kingdom of light, it would have jogged back these stories they had heard their whole lives of the exodus of the people of Israel. When they were in Egypt and they were in slavery and they cried out to God and God heard them and through Moses, he arranges this whole set of circumstances to lead them out of Egypt. And when Paul tells or, or uses this phrase, in some ways he's retelling that story to remind them and to remind us in the same way the Israelites had no part in God's rescue. All they did was follow him out. They didn't pray their way out of it. They didn't buy their way out of it. They didn't pol politic their way out of it. They didn't fight their way out of it. They waited till the chosen moment in God's plan when he said, now you will be free. And they followed him out of the land of slavery into the land of promise. And this is the language Paul chooses to use to describe what Christ has done for us. And it's so important for us to hear it. And even when he talks about you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, these are, such, these are terms we've heard so many times in the church, we don't think about them anymore. But that idea of redemption is not just, hey, Jesus has kind of loosened the chains of sin, so now you can run out on your own effort. But it's the idea of emancipation. You know, the closest thing we have in American history is when President Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation. And in that moment, every person who was a slave in the United States was declared free. And that declaration meant that no one anywhere had any right to tell them 
how to live or what to do. They were completely free, subject only to the laws of the land. This is what Paul is saying Jesus has done for us, that while we were slaves in the dominion of darkness, Jesus comes as our liberator. While we were in the dominion of darkness, trying to religiously work our way out of it, trying to discern God's will on our own, trying to be better, trying to be holier, while we were embracing the darkness and running deeper into sin, Jesus comes to emancipate us, to declare you are free. This no longer has a hold on you. You can move out into a new way of life. See, the supremacy of Christ over sin means that Jesus is always bigger than your sin. It, it would have pointed their minds back to this is what Jesus did in our history, but then it was also intended to point their minds to that moment to see that Jesus still comes as a liberating king. And he doesn't come just to set us free and then leave us in the darkness, but he comes to lead us out into the kingdom of the Son. He reestablishes our souls in a land where we can grow in our knowledge and our experience of God. And he does this through complete emancipation, through total redemption. What that means for us is that no matter how thick our chains of sin may be, Jesus is stronger. It means no matter how traumatic your experiences of life have been, his grace is abundant. It means no matter how repetitive, no matter how in love you are with your sin, his strength, his grace runs deeper and can bring it out from the roots. It means that Jesus came to cleanse, to restore, to renew all things. See, the supremacy of Christ enables him to redeem all of us. It enables him to redeem our past, our present, and our future. The salvation he offers us is complete. And wherever you find yourself this morning, my prayer is that you see Christ coming to you as your liberator, as the one who sets you free, not the one who brings you into this new life of like, okay, now I gotta follow all these rules and I gotta do all these things, but Christ who comes to move you from the dominion of darkness, from a place where your soul shrivels into a kingdom of light where your soul will thrive, where you will know a freedom that you have never known before. I want to pray for you, and then the, the band's going to come back, and they're going to lead us in a few songs to remind us of these realities that Colossians proclaims to us. You bow your heads with me. Lord, we come to you this morning you see the condition of each one of our hearts, Lord. You see the struggles we have. You see the doubts that we wrestle with. You see the pain that has been inflicted on us and that we have inflicted on ourselves. And Lord, I ask in this moment that you would help each one of us to look up and to see the supremacy of Christ in this moment in our life. May we see that everywhere we've been and all that we've ever done, Jesus has been in, with, and under our lives. Guiding us, leading us, protecting us, calling us towards him. 
So Jesus, in this moment, we just respond to you and we respond to your grace and we ask that you would come and you would emancipate us from our sin. Be our liberator and may the glorious might of Christ defeat all darkness in our life and lead us into your kingdom of light this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We stand with us and sing these songs as a, just a reminder and a declaration of what Christ has done. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.